Greetings, my good people. How are you? What's happening? What is going on? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling well, doing well, enjoying the start of their week as we zoom through the sports stratosphere, delivering everything that's going on in the world of sports here on this edition of the J Reels Podcast, as this is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 102 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, December the 9th, in the year of our Lord 2019. Here's what I have on deck for you. The college football playoff is set. That's right, the four teams, the top four, no argument whatsoever. LSU, Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State. We'll recap what happened over the weekend, as well as why is the championship game two weeks after the college football doubleheader on December 28th? That I do not understand, but we'll touch on that all later on. MLB, the hot stove, is certainly heating up. The GM meetings are taking place in San Diego, and of course, the Yankees, on bended knee, have put the offer for Garrett Cole, seven years, $245 million. We'll see what that leads to, as well as the Mets, new ownership, Steve Cohen, who is this guy? It's not finalized yet, but let's hope and pray, fingers crossed for the, all the Mets fans out there, that we may have a new sheriff in town, but we may have to wait five years. All that to come, as well as what's happening in the NBA and the NHL. But of course, football will be front and center from here on out as we are just about completed with week 13, or I should say 14, excuse me, here in the National Football League, where tonight, a game with playoff implications for sure, down in Philadelphia between the Giants and Eagles. As we all know, the Eagles can't get out of their own way, but you would think, even with Eli Manning, who knows if he has one last bit of magic in his illustrious career, we all know the resume, etc. Will he be able to upset the apple cart there? That is the NFC least. So we'll uh, touch on uh, that game later on. But right now, the takeaways from this weekend, you have to start what happened in New Orleans. And we understand that was a freakish game from a standpoint of 94 points between the two teams. Not to say that this was going to be a defensive battle by any stretch. We all know that the Niner defense is stout. The Saint defense, which is better in their building, but again, still very questionable to say the least as far as them coming up in a big spot. And yesterday what you saw was a shootout to probably the game of the NFL season where the Niners certainly survived and were able to get out of NOLA with a 48-46 win thanks to Robbie Gold's game-expiring field goal. There's tons to discuss here. Now, I didn't watch play-by-play. I watched some of the game. I was traveling in the middle of the afternoon uh, before I was able to watch the Steeler game, so I didn't really get a full grasp of this game. But following it from afar, the Saints, as we've seen, they jump up to that big lead. Why at 13-7 they went for two there was inexplicable, if you ask me. And if you want to look at it from a standpoint of those are the two points that certainly could have made the difference in this game as far as going into overtime. But why did they decide to go for two there was beyond me. And as the game started to progress, 20-7, then 27-14, they had to lead before the Niners came roaring back. And then to me, a big play in this game was the fake punt that down the sideline there with Traquan Smith and the pass interference penalty that was not called, and funny enough as it is in that building, and we all know if we go back to the NFC Championship game of last year, but Traquan Smith was mugged downfield by Tarverius Moore. Why did he not call a flag or throw a flag on that play is beyond me. And to me, not to say that was a turning point, but you kind of thought that at that moment, would this be, would this be the Saints' day even though they took the lead late and ended up squandering it with 53 seconds to go. 
But that was a play that certainly you had to circle and wonder why. Now, again, not following the game, play by play. I don't know if that was a play that should have been challenged. I don't know if they didn't have any challenges, which was kind of the theme with the big games in the day, especially in New England, which we'll talk about later on. But when the Saints weren't able to throw a flag there, and I don't know what more you could see on that because as both of the players are going downfield, Moore was not in his back pocket. It was an assault. It was a mugging. It, I, what can you say? And no flag was thrown. But give credit to the Niners. They certainly persevered. Niners did just enough of what you thought was going to be a rock'em sock'em, just 15-round heavyweight fight. And give credit to Jimmy Garoppolo. He did a fantastic job, especially look at the week before, playing in Baltimore. And I believe they stood on the East Coast throughout the course of the week. I believe they were actually trained in Florida between the games uh, in Baltimore and in New Orleans. But Jimmy G there, even in the final stretch at 46-45, they had three timeouts, which was critical. And they had the ball. And I just knew, even after the Saints scored, now they had to get that two-point conversion, which they were unable to do. But I felt at that point that they were going to go ahead and win this game because of the timeouts in their back pocket. And Jimmy G was just able to throw the ball over the lot throughout the course of the day. And then it just boils down to that fourth and two play to George Kittle, where he found them out there in the flat. And then he was able to go down the sideline. And Marcus Williams, speaking of muggings, was just all in his face mask, grabbing it pretty much for like 30 yards, it seemed. And pretty much set themselves up for a chip shot to get out of New Orleans with a 48-46 to victory. And the Saints, Drew Brees played phenomenally. The Saint offense, I know Alvin Kamara certainly didn't have his fingerprints on this game. Which you kind of wonder what his health status is. He had a couple of plays, but that was it. I believe he had 43 total yards. And coming from him, that's certainly... Not going to bode well if the Saints are looking to go for a deep playoff run, especially for a Super Bowl. So who knows if health is involved there. But uh, you got to give credit. The Saints played an excellent game. Now, of course, defensively, they they did not. But Breeze, you would think that now moving forward, looking at the standings, and we'll get to that a little bit later on, but this was a critical loss for them because now it looks like they're going to have to go on the road to play an NFC title game. Not to say they can't win in San Francisco, Who knows what the weather will be like. Obviously, that's for that day down the road, and we're certainly looking way too far down the road in that regard. But be that as it may, the Saints right now had a golden opportunity to take a stranglehold on the NFC. And right now, they have certainly slipped big time to the point where now they're the three-seed in the conference because Green Bay has overtaken them as the two-seed in the NFC. So when the dust settles... This three-game stretch for the Niners, where it started two weeks ago, Sunday night against the Packers as they destroyed Green Bay. Last week, in another rock'em, sock'em tussle with them and the Ravens, they ended up losing a game in the final seconds and then going down to New Orleans and winning that game in the final seconds. I think this is going to be, when you look at these three games, it's going to be season-defining because they destroyed the Packers and won. Hung tough with the Ravens in bad conditions in two. And in a hostile environment in New Orleans, we're able to pull out a game where it meant all the marbles in the NFC. So credit to the Niners. This was a true test for them. And they're not out of the woods yet. You know, they still have to play the Rams. They still have Seattle in the final game of the season in Seattle. And who knows what that's going to 
B, as far as for the division or even for top billing in the NFC. So despite the fact that San Francisco's in the driver's seat and has everything in front of them as far as their destiny is concerned, they still have some tough games on the schedule before it's all said and done. But kudos to them. Great job. And the Niners certainly bounced back. Think about this. The week before, they were fifth in the NFC, and then they shot right back up to number one in a matter of seven days. So good for the Niners in that regard. Now, the other game of note, it was in the afternoon with the Chiefs and Patriots. Now, I did follow that game, not as close as the Saints and Niners. Again, I was engulfed in the Steeler game, so I was back and forth checking out the Chiefs and Patriots. And pretty much what you take from this game, now the Pats D certainly did not play well during that stretch in the second and third quarter. They were able to slow down the Chiefs a little bit there as you got there late in the game. And pretty much what it's going to look at here or what it's going to boil down to is the touchdown that wasn't to be where Nkeel Harry was able to stretch, I believe it was Jacoby Myers, was able to stretch into the end zone there at 23-13. And it was all for naught because the officials screwed up on the sideline thinking that the play was out of bounds, that he stepped out about the three-yard line. But going back to what I said earlier as far as the challenges are concerned and what happened in the Saints-Niner game, well, when you're wondering what happened there, why didn't Belichick throw a flag, or the red flag, to see if they could challenge that, he already used both of those, one on the chip pass interference play involving Travis Kelsey, which wasn't overturned, and then later on on the Kelsey fumble, which obviously you had to throw there if you're Belichick, which they were able to overturn. So he was out of challenges there and, of course, could not throw the flag there, which would have made the score 23-20. But instead, they had to settle for a field goal to make it 23-16 and to think late in the game as they're marching down the field, if they would have had the touchdown, they could have settled for the field goal there with Nick Folk to tie the game. But, of course, not having a challenge in their back pocket, they were unable to do so. And the Chiefs run out of Foxborough with a victory. And the Chiefs, they had their moments on offense Mahomes, he banged his right hand early on in the game. You can see he was squeezing it from time to time. But they were only they were able to make a few plays. Tyreek Hill had a couple of plays, nothing of monster yard, you know, monster yards. They were able to move the chains in big moments with LaShawn McCoy. Not that he had a big game. And even Mahomes, for that matter, did not have a great game, but did just enough for them to win. And the Patriot offense, it goes without saying, they are hurting for a big time playmaker. And as we all know in the past, that guy was Rob Gronkowski as far as the security blanket was concerned. And Julian Edelman, as we all know, people think that he's a number one wide receiver. Well, on that team he is, but we all know he's a slot guy. He is a two at best. And certainly they're going to double team him and go to, the defense is going to go to the other players, whether it be Keel Harry or Jacoby Myers or guys like that. I mean, Phil Dorsett, he wasn't anywhere to be found on the field yesterday. Not that he's any big-time threat, but you would think that he's a guy that obviously has experience and has made plays in this league. But the Patriot offense, and Tom Brady was under siege. He was pressured left and right, throwing balls away. In fact, I was very impressed by Brady, you know, slipping, and we've seen that from time to time. But even yesterday in the rush, he certainly was able to kind of bob and weave and try to go ahead and not, you know, just be part of the pocket where he was able to slip and move. And good for him and for able to do that because if not, he would have taken some walloping hits. But the Patriots right now, 
even at 10-3, and three, and I'm sure a lot of people in the league would love to have their problems, but offensively, going into January is going to be a very interesting development to see what is going to take place. Now, you would figure in that first game at home in the divisional round because they're going to get the number two seed. You would think it will go through the seedings a little bit later on considering what happened in Houston yesterday. But the Patriots right now, I know that, and we saw this last year. Remember, they lost back-to-back games in December when they lost to Miami and Pittsburgh. And then what happened? They went on a run, and we all know they hoisted their sixth Lombardi trophy. Well, here they are now in December, and they've lost two in a row. And now they face the Bengals, the Bills, in an interesting matchup, and we'll see how that shakes down. And then, of course, the Dolphins to close out the season. So you would think that they'll go ahead and win their 12 games, have their two seed, and hopefully within 13 or 14 days' time, depending on how the schedule shakes down, that come to the divisional playoff, they'll be firing on all, all cylinders, even with the, the likes of rookies, second-year players, and things of that nature. And then you look at what happened at Orchard Park yesterday between the Ravens and Bills. Now the Ravens, nine in a row that they've won here. Lamar Jackson did not have a great game. I understand you look at the final numbers, the three touchdowns, the one interception, which wasn't his fault. But he only threw for 100-some-odd yards. Didn't really he rushed for over 1,000 yards. He's not a second quarterback in NFL history, which I'm sure he's just a couple dozen yards behind Michael Vick for the all-time single-season rushing record for a quarterback, which I'm sure he'll break come Thursday night against the Jets. So you'll have some history being made on national TV in the final Thursday night game of the year. But with the Ravens, as typical, they do just enough to win these games. Now, the one thing, if you're a Raven fan of you for Baltimore, the one thing I'd be concerned about is that Lamar Jackson is too reliant on his tight end. Now, Mark Andrews, who left the game early, who is a security blanket, to say the least, he had that big touchdown pass to Hayden Hurst, which was a busted coverage because he was wide open as... Jackson found him down the field, and as we all know, the Ravens do not stretch the field when it comes to their passing game, but they did just enough, and their defense hung in there. They had a big fourth down, which they stopped as the Bills were trying to drive there late in the game to look for the equalizer, and now nine in a row for the Baltimore Ravens, and with the Patriots losing, they have a game-and-a-half lead in the AFC, and it sure looks like they could cruise to not only a division title, which will happen next week with a victory and a steal or loss, but also the chance of getting a one seed throughout the AFC in the postseason. As we move along, especially in the AFC, I'll get to the Steelers a little bit later on, but the Titans, it's funny. The Titans are a team that are now 8-5. and five. They've won all these games with Ryan Tannehill, and here they are on the outside looking in because their conference record, they're a half game behind the Steelers. They're 6-4 and four with Pittsburgh 6-3. Six and, six and three. And for whatever it is, I don't know what's gone on down in Tennessee, what's in the water, but Ryan Tannehill is certainly looking like he could be the long-term answer at quarterback, which is kind of hard to fathom as I just <laughs> stated that sentence. Now, they won a big game out in Oakland, 42-21. Tannehill, he had that 91-yard touchdown. Also threw another touchdown where he's rolling right and he throws across his body. It, just, it was almost like schoolyard plays. But they're doing the job. You can say goodbye to Raiders for the, regularly, for the regular season. 
to think they were six and four, and a lot of people thought that they actually had a shot to make the postseason. Well, you can forget about that. That's already out to sea. So now you're down to the final game or so out in Oakland before they move to Vegas, and that's a joke. And I've talked about that in the past. I know during the game, coming back from a commercial break, they actually showed the construction of the Vegas stadium. And I believe, just from the looks of it, it's probably, I don't know, half complete or half constructed, however you want to call it. And just to think that the final game, and again, we all know that Oakland, they need a new stadium. That's an old dump there. The Coliseum has been there forever. But as we all know, greed in the NFL, you would think that with private money, they will go ahead and construct this building somewhere out there by the bay, but obviously not. They don't want the league to pay for it. They figure that they have public money. And Vegas says, hey, we have a hockey team here. Why not bring a football team? And we all know the story from there. So, But anyway, I digress. To get back to the AFC picture, you figure the Colts now, they're going to be out looking in. Now they're 6-7 and seven as they lose to the Buccaneers yesterday. Jameis Winston with four touchdowns with three interceptions. That's a typical Jameis Winston game in 2019. The other shocker was the Broncos and Texans. And I don't know what happened with the Texans, and this is one of the reasons why I can't trust them. They come off a Sunday night win over the Patriots last week, and you figured, hey, they finally slayed the Dragon, at least in a regular season, because we all know that the Patriots will not lose to the Texans come postseason. But here it is after a great performance in front of a national TV audience. They stink up the joint. They were down 21-3 in this game. Drew Locke, who who knows? They could finally have a quarterback since the days of Peyton Manning there. And with Flacco on the shelf, who knows? I'm sure his days will probably be numbered. But Drew Locke is showing you a little something here in these couple of starts that he's had and propels them to a 38-24 victory. And the Texans are one of those teams that just make you scratch your head. So now they're 8-5. and five. In the AFC. So they're going to be no threat to the Patriots. You figure with tiebreakers, there would have been something there. But you can forget about that. They look like they're going to be either three or four seed. Right now, they're actually the fourth slot in the AFC. But obviously, mentioning Tennessee, they have two of the next three weeks. will pretty much determine the division. Because the Texans will go to Tennessee in the first of two matchups over these final three weeks. And you would think that this will be the beginning of what could possibly be the end for either Houston or Tennessee. And the reason why I say that is because with Pittsburgh in the mix, and I got to look at the tiebreakers between Houston and Pittsburgh, but pretty much one of those teams will cancel out. As I said, Tennessee right now on the outside looking in, but with victory this coming Sunday, they will have the top seed in the AFC South, meaning that they will also be in the postseason picture. Whereas the Texans, barring what the Steelers do Sunday night to the Bills, and again, I'll look at the standings in a moment to see where they fall because they may be on the outside looking in. Now, you also looking at here in the AFC, and you know what? Let me get to Pittsburgh now. I know I always like to save them for last. Steelers, their defense is going to take them as far in 2019, and who knows how far that's going to be, whether they do make it to the postseason, if they get past round one, or dare I even say a divisional round. But the defense had to step up when need be, a la Joe Hayden with his two interceptions, especially that second one, which was after a fake punt, and the Cardinals at 20 to 10 at that time were going down the field, and they had the big interception there by Hayden, which was the beginning of two other interceptions that took place, whether it was TJ Watt there, inexplicably, again at 20 to 10. Kyler Murray, who had plenty of room to go for first down, it was a fourth and two at about the four, 
So he rolls out right, and for whatever the reason, rookie mistake, that's what you're going to chalk it up to. He rolls out, and he had plenty of real estate just to either get the first down or even possibly dive into the end zone. But instead, he throws the ball right into the hands of T.J. Watt. So that was a huge break for the Steelers. And then at the end, they on a 4th and 22, a Hail Mary was thrown, and Joe Hayden got his second interception of the day, third in two weeks. And the Steelers do just enough on offense. They are certainly an eyesore on offense. And we understand that with a third-string quarterback, Devlin Hodges, just like Mike Tomlin said two weeks ago, he said he's not going to kill us, and he did just that. He made a great touchdown throw to Deontay Johnson in the corner. Also, Deontay Johnson with the 85-yard punt return. Got to throw that in the mix. And the Steelers do just enough on offense and more than enough on defense for them to secure a 23-17 victory in the desert and still hold on to that sixth spot in the AFC. Now, one thing I want to mention, I didn't say this in the Niner game, which was also pretty key. There was a play with Kyle Yusek, the fullback. He got hit. And I believe at the time it was 35-33. This was after the fake punt where Yusef got hit on a play where I believe it was third and four and it was an unnecessary roughness, blow to the head, called for a flag, and then he scored a touchdown there to make it 42-33. Well, in the Steeler game in the first quarter, Jalen Samuels, I'm sure you've probably seen the highlight by now, it was a third and two and he makes this one-handed grab and he gets annihilated by the linebacker Jordan Hicks to where the helmet goes flying off. His mouthpiece is pretty much hanging out of his mouth, and no flag was thrown. I don't understand what these refs are watching here half the time, and we could talk about the officiating from here to the cows come home, but that was a play, and again, didn't mean anything. It was in the first quarter, but it just makes you scratch your head when you talk about player safety and any hit that has to be with a runner or a receiver that's going to be in a position where obviously they're going to be open to big hits and is defenseless, but no call was made there. But obviously a call was made on the fullback there in the Niners sink game. But I don't know. These officials, they, they don't even know what they're doing half the time. And it, sadly, it just destroys the game. But as I move on, so the Steelers there continue, and they have a Sunday night matchup, which was flexed out for Minnesota and the L.A. Chargers. So we'll talk about that game a little while, uh, in a little bit, I should say. Uh, another game of note. There, as I turn my attention to the NFC, the Rams certainly hang in there as they beat the Seahawks. Rams, who were pretty much on life support, as we thought, as far as their hopes for the playoffs this year after going to the Super Bowl last year, but they certainly did just enough. In fact, Jared Goff, who had 293 yards, but he threw a couple of picks, and Todd Gurley certainly had his fingerprints on this game for the first time in a long time. And during the week, I know Sean McVay, the coach, said that he has to incorporate Gurley more. We all know about his... Uh, injury history with his knee and not being the same player that he once was, especially after signing the big contract. Well, at least for one night, Gurley did show that he was uh, effective and was able to make some plays to the tune of 23 carries. Now, only 79 yards, no biggie, but I guess it's better than 12 for 55. So who knows how sustainable he's going to be down the stretch here and if the Rams will somehow, some way sneak into the NFC playoff picture. So that's what we got there. The other games I'm not going to even touch, you know, Browns and Bengals. I know there's been a lot of talk about OBJ this week as far as him wanting out of Cleveland. Uh, Obviously, he needs to pipe down. Please, does anybody want to hear from Odell Beckham Jr. right now? Of course not. Nobody's going to get crazy about Chargers and Jaguars, Dolphins, Jets. Jets almost, and I know Brian Flores was 
screaming off the field, I believe, on a pass interference call that shouldn't have been thrown, hence the officiating again. Vikings beat the Lions. Packers had a little scare with the Redskins as they hung in a little bit longer than they should, but they were able to win. Panthers and Falcons. Falcons win a game where Matt Ryan goes over 50,000 yards. I believe he's the 10th player in NFL history that's gone over 50,000. And to think, for him to get to that number, and he's relatively young. What is he, 33, 34 tops? He's probably going to play another four or five years. He's going to throw maybe close to 70,000 yards. And the first thing I think about, is he a Hall of Famer? Now, we know he's won an MVP, and we understand that the league, the way it is, it's a passing league. He's probably going to make it. And who knows? His story's still not finished yet, and it's still to be written, but him not getting that Super Bowl certainly is not going to help him as far as his chance for the Hall of Fame, but we shall see. that. Obviously, that's a conversation for another day, but that was something that it, when I saw the stat there, I was shocked. I said, well, geez, he's already made it to 50,000. And then the uh, Thursday night game with the Cowboys, I get, they're doing whatever it takes just to say, Philadelphia, please, just take the division. We don't want it. As they put up a stinker in Chicago there on Thursday night, and as we talked about earlier, let's see what the Eagles do tonight. And I tell you, they have been given so many chances to get back in this race that if they do not, even with Eli under center, and mind you, he hasn't been under center since week two, but you would think that the Eagles will do just enough to win a game tonight to pull themselves even in the NFC East. Now, of course, they don't match up until two weeks from now, which will be a, an enormous game in the NFC least. But we'll have to wait two weeks for that as the Rams will go to Dallas in a 425 game, and then the Eagles will go to Washington before they match up in Philadelphia two weeks from yesterday. So that's what you pretty much have for your week 14 in the NFL. And to just touch on a week 15 this upcoming week, we talked about the Thursday night game, Jets-Ravens. You have a lot of awful games on the docket. So the big games, I'm going to just cut right to it. Your 1 o'clock big game right now is Texans-Titans. Who would have thought that three, four weeks ago that people would look at the highlight game this coming Sunday to be Texans at Titans, but sadly it is your afternoon game, 4 o'clock, you figure Rams-Cowboys. I guess that's going to be a game that uh, obviously the nation's going to look at, and of course the Rams trying to make that push in the NFC, and we'll see if the Cowboys could uh, hang on depending on what uh, Philadelphia does tonight, because as I said before, Philly is in the nation's capital at 1 o'clock. And then your uh, Sunday night game is Bills and Steelers, which is a big game from this regard. The Steelers are one game behind the Bills as far as seeding is concerned. So if the Steelers were to win that game, they will not only draw even, but they'll have the tiebreaker. So they'll be the five seed in the conference, which is big because as of right now, if you're a Steeler fan like I am, of course, would you rather play the Chiefs in the first round or the Texans in the first round? Or maybe even the Titans for that matter, depending on what happens there Sunday afternoon. So that's something that you got to keep in mind there, Steeler fans. So you can only worry about your team. I get that. But would you rather have a five seed or a six seed? And I think you'd rather move up a notch because you'd rather face either Tennessee or Houston as opposed to Kansas City because, as we all know, with their offense and with Mahomes under center, certainly they could uh, have a deep run in store if they get hot at the right time. And the defense hasn't played half bad. Despite the fact yesterday, I understand it's more of an indictment on the Patriot offense than it is on the Chief defense. So that's what you got there next week. Uh, As far as the big games are concerned, your Monday night game is Colts Saints. Obviously nothing home to write about there, but of course as far as seeding is concerned, it's huge. And let's get right to that. So 
right now in the AFC, this is what we have. We have Baltimore with a game and a half lead because of the tiebreaker. They're 11 and 2, top seed. New England 10 and 3 is your number 2. Kansas City right now 9 and 4 is your 3 seed, followed by Houston at 8 and 5, Buffalo 9 and 4, number 5, Pittsburgh 6, 8 and 5. And of course, we cannot forget Tennessee who was 8 and 5, but of course, looking to their uh, matchup this coming Sunday against the Texans for division. And once again, they do play twice in the final three weeks. We'll certainly determine who's going to come out of the AFC South. And that's pretty much it. You can about Cleveland, Oakland, Indy. They're long gone. And we'll see how the AFC, of course, unfolds. And it's going to be a big one when you think about it because you have Tennessee and Houston and Buffalo-Pittsburgh. All those seeds right there are going to be impacted this coming Sunday so by, I guess, 11.30 Sunday night, we'll certainly have a much clearer picture as far as the AFC is concerned. Now, to turn our attention to the NFC, the Saints were just an enormous win yesterday. Right now, control their own destiny with the top seed, followed by Green Bay, number two. New Orleans, who did clinch a, a playoff berth yesterday by winning the division, even with the loss. But right now, they have the three seed at 10-3, and three, followed by Dallas, 6-7. Then uh, Seattle at 10-3, and three, the fifth seed. Minnesota 9-4, and four, followed by the Rams at 8-5. and five. Do you want to throw in the Bears in the mix as far as the NFC is concerned? I'm not going to put them in as of right now. I hate to say it, so forgive me, uh, Bear fans. Now, they played the Packers this week in Green Bay, so I guess that's a game of note when you want to look at it from that regard. But uh, that's what you have there in the uh, NFC. And we'll see what happens there this coming week. As I said, with the matchups in Washington, with Philadelphia, obviously Rams and Cowboys, a big game. The Saints have the Colts on a Monday night. And then uh, San Francisco this week. Let me see what the Niners have. I didn't even get to look to see. The Niners this week, I believe they'll be at home since they had these two games on the road. They will have the Falcons come to their building. So they can be dangerous, but you would think after this three-game stretch, a little bit of an exhale with the Falcons coming in, but that's why they play the games. Would you be surprised if the Falcons go up in there and put a 30 spot? And Kyle Shanahan going up against his former team. Remember, he, of course, he was the offensive coordinator in Atlanta for all those years, especially that Super Bowl year. So uh, you have an interesting storyline with that. As for the college football, we are all set with our top four teams, and pretty much Utah set the tone there Friday night in their game against Oregon with the tune of a 37-15 defeat. Now, Oregon jumped out early. Justin Herbert, the quarterback, who's going to be highly touted coming out and being part of the 2020 draft, did not have a big game. Uh, He did throw a touchdown, but he only had 140-some-odd yards. But they uh, obviously did more than enough. They jumped out to a 20-0 lead, and even though the Utes came uh, storming back, but uh, certainly were not able to come back to tie or take the lead as Oregon just ran right through them to the tune of a 37-15 game. And that pretty much set the tone and made me think that, well, Georgia, although you didn't think they stood much of a chance in the SEC championship game, as we saw there, LSU looks like right now they're going to be a tough out and have their sights set on a national championship. Pretty much almost the same score as the Utah-Oregon uh, Utah game, 37-10. to Joe Burrow, who chances are is going to be your Heisman Trophy winner, 349 yards, four touchdowns, cakewalk as LSU has secured the bag for the top seed out of the college football playoff four. And then your other two teams, we knew Ohio State was going to be a part of this, whether win or lose. Either one of the top three teams, if they were to lose, they were no way going to not be a part of this college football playoff mix. 
But Ohio State, Wisconsin, who knew? 21-7 at the half. People thinking, oh, geez, can Wisconsin somehow, some way pull this off? Obviously, that wasn't going to be the case. The minute they came out to start the second half, Justin Fields and company was uh, certainly unable to be stopped as they put up 27 unanswered points in the second half. And Ohio State just cruised from then on out. Just to think, at 21-7, they cruised to a 34-21 victory. And Ohio State, as we all know, they're going to be a tough out here in this college football playoff. But good job by them to go ahead and win their Big 12 championship. And then Oklahoma and Baylor, that was the best of all the games this weekend where Oklahoma, Jalen Hurts, now it took three quarterbacks, believe it or not, by Baylor. You had the starting quarterback was out of the game early, and then later on to pretty much mop up was none other than Jacob Zeno. Now they had 13-0 and a 23-13 lead late. Baylor came back on both time, you know, both times to push it into overtime. And then obviously by the time he got to overtime, Oklahoma scores, and then Zeno was just under siege there where on third and long gets sacked, and then on fourth and long tries to throw up a Hail Mary while being sacked. But give them credit, Baylor had a phenomenal year, but uh, certainly fell short in this game as uh, Oklahoma now moved up two slots. They obviously, with Utah losing and Georgia losing, they got your fourth seed there in the college football playoff. So come December 28th, your Peach Bowl in Atlanta is going to feature LSU and Oklahoma, followed by the Fiesta Bowl where we have Ohio State facing Clemson. Now, I did not understand why that college football was going to postpone the championship game for not just the week after, because this game's taking place on a Saturday, and we figured that, all right, December 28th, that the championship game will be January 6th, nine days after that. No, let's make it 16 days after. So on January the 13th, that's where we're going to have the college football national championship game, which is to be played in New Orleans. Well, if that's the case, why don't you play the day after the Super Bowl so you can have back-to-back championship games with the NFL and college football? That doesn't make any sense. As it is, it's bad enough that there's usually long breaks with these games. I believe last year you had, it's usually on a Monday, but I believe last year the game was played, no, nah, I believe it was a Saturday. It usually should be a nine-day stretch where these games are being played. Sometimes it's 10, 11, depending on where it falls on the calendar. But you would think Saturday, nine days later, that's it. Get a championship game, start off the new year with your champion pretty much the first week of the year, and that's it. No, let's postpone it another week. Why not? And I believe Louisville's playing Miami of Ohio, part of the bowl schedule. You couldn't move that up by any stretch. You couldn't move that up to Friday night. I understand you're not going to play it Saturday or Sunday because it's going up against the NFL, but it is Louisville, Miami of Ohio. Does anybody really have their eyes set on watching that matchup where it's totally meaningless? And I've said this all along, people, and no offense to any of the schools that are going to be participating in the zillion bowls between now and January the 13th, but I cannot get into any of these games. I'm sorry. Why, why would I even want to watch any of these games? Unless you're, you've gone to the school or you're a fan of the school's team, all these bowls are just unnecessary. And we understand why, and we don't need to get into that. We get it that it brings the institution money for whatever bowl it is, whether it's the pinstripe bowl at Yankee Stadium or the what is the one in Miami. The, they play even Marlins Park. It's like the second bowl game, the Miami Beach Bowl. We get it that these smaller schools, they get 
some publicity. They get some sort of attention here. But does anybody really care at the end of the day? No. So that's why you're not going to watch me or you're not going to see me watch any of these games. I'll pay attention to the college football playoff, obviously. But, uh, yeah, these are the bowls, please. And just to think that they're going to wait 15 days between the championship doubleheader and the actual title game is just a disgrace. So that's my two cents on that. And uh, college football now will close out the regular season next Saturday or this coming Saturday with Army-Navy down in Philadelphia, which is always historical from that standpoint. They played for, what, over 100-some-odd years. That's always a big game. And even though I understand people say, who cares about Army-Navy? But it is Army-Navy. Both of these schools, Navy has gotten the best of Army over the years, of course. But that's as uh, patriotic as it possibly could be when you have both of the you know, both the Army and Navy going up against one another here to finish off college football for 2019, as far as the regular season is concerned. So that's what we have with the college, and uh, pretty much puts a bed to all the football here, pro and college, for uh, the podcast this week. All right, before I get to the NBA and NHL, and then close out with the Hero and Zero of the Week, I have to turn my attention to the hot stove and Major League Baseball and everything that's happening around there, because you had a few trades and some signings over the past week where now you figure it's going to really crank up here over the course of the next four days and hopefully beyond where the winter meetings are taking place in San Diego right now. So who knows what kind of juicy morsels or details, the kernels, whatever you want to call it, that we're going to get coming out of the Southern California region. Well, before we even get to that, right now the Marriage proposal of seven years for $245 million has been forked over by the New York Yankees to a one Scott Boris for his client named Garrett Cole. So the proverbial wedding ring has been extended on bended knee. Now it's up to Garrett Cole to accept or reject because all that's facing Garrett Cole right now And you would think without his West Coast bias that he said last week that it's certainly not going to be influenced by wanting to go back home in the Southern California region. But just note that if the Angels have a say in owner Artie Moreno, you would think that they're going to come with an offer, if not close, maybe a little bit more than what the Yankees have put on the table. And it's going to be a fascinating fascinating emotional tug of war because I'm sure – Boris and Cole, as much as they may want to jump on that now, but you know he's going to try to squeeze out another 10, 20, 30, who knows how many millions of dollars because a lot of people think that this contract could be close to $300 million. And I would think the Angels, knowing that they need pitching, I would think the Angels are going to throw an offer out there because not only do they need starting pitching, and they've made some moves here this offseason, nothing of any exceptional or something that you're going to write home about. But knowing that they have to bring that stud, that guy that's going to anchor the rotation to go along with Mike Trout's now 13-year record-breaking contract as we saw this past offseason, they need to have that guy to complement a one Mike Trout who, as we all know, not only the best player in the sport, but a guy who has only seen the postseason once in his eight years of playing in Major League Baseball. So the fascinating thing that I'm going to look at here is if the Angels have an offer on the table, or if they do 
present an offer. What is it going to be? Is it going to be that much more? Is it going to be in the ballpark, meaning anywhere between 240 to 250? And I say that much more, let's say maybe to go 270. Or is it going to be just a little less? And it's a matter of Garrett Cole wondering if he's going to take the money and come to the Bronx where the Yankees will be the odds-on favorite to win the American League next year. Or will he take just a little bit less to be in the comforts of Southern California where he's from? I think it's Newport Beach or somewhere not far from Anaheim. And be able to try to bring the Angels back to some sort of relevance as far as the American League is concerned. Now, of course, I can't tell you which way he's going to go. I mean, it'd be easy to say he's going to take the money and go to the Bronx and play for the Yankees and wear the pinstripes and have number 45 buttoned up with the carving board cut out there in Yankee Stadium sometime in the next couple of weeks. But it's going to be interesting to see. Over the years, the Yankees have not been able to get that guy. They have not been able to get the free agent. As we all know, in the George Steinbrenner years, George always got his man. But in the Hal Steinbrenner, Brian Cashman side of the negotiations, they certainly haven't been as successful when it comes to landing the big fish. So if the Angels somehow, some way, swoop in, or any other team for that matter, but you think the Angels are going to be the stiffest competition, what they offer, whether it's blown out of the water or somewhere in the ballpark of what the Yankees have, and if he goes to the Angels, now of course they're going to say, well, he wanted to go home. And then, of course, they'll turn their attention to Steven Strasburg. But it'll be very interesting to see that if the Angels do happen, and I think it's going to be the Angels that are going to be the only competition here. If the Angels do wind up signing Garrett Cole, not to say that there's scraps left on the free agent pitching market, but it will say a lot as to how the Yankees certainly aren't always able to get their man. And they haven't done so, especially over the last seven, eight years. Since they moved into the new ballpark, obviously it shows because they haven't won a World Series in 10 years. So that's the one fascinating angle that I'm going to look at when it comes to this whole Garrett Cole negotiation and where he ends up here. Now, to turn my attention, well, I'll get to them in the Mets in a minute. Let me stick with the hot stove stuff. Now, the first sign that we will look at as far as the dominoes concerned, as far as them falling, well, Mike Moustakis, who was with the Brewers, obviously with the Kansas City Royals for many years, he signed a four-year deal to play second base. Surprisingly, I guess he would look to want to play second, considering Eugenio Suarez is your third baseman, but four years, $64 million to play for Cincinnati with the Reds. The Padres are looking to see what they could do as far as bolstering up their team. Now, they traded for Jerickson Profar, who was a just a an enormous prospect coming out of Curacao many years ago, but certainly hasn't panned out to be what he was all hyped up about. Remember, he was with Texas, then he got traded to Oakland, but now the San Diego Padres, who made a trade for him, and then also traded for Tommy Pham, who was the outfielder for the Tampa Bay Rays. Before that, the St. Louis Cardinals for Hunter Renfro, and there were some prospects that were exchanged along the way. I know Blake Smell, Snell, the 2018 American League Cy Young Award winner, was up in arms over the trade, how Tommy Pham was a glue guy, kept everybody loose, obviously was a very productive player, was exasperated of the deal, so who knows what that may mean for San Diego as they're trying to make a push here with the great young talent that they have, as well as Manny Machado as they signed last offseason. And then Mark Lerner, the 
owner of the 2019 World Series champs, Washington Nationals, came out recently to say that you know they can't keep both Anthony Rendon or Steven Strasburg. Yeah, no whoop. I mean, you would figure that you would sign one of the two. If I'm them, you got to throw everything in the bank at Anthony Rendon. They have, for two more years, Max Scherzer. And they also have Patrick Corbin, who is not Steven Strasburg. But at least you have two guys at the top of your rotation that you could at least go to battle with. You lose Rendon, and we get to have a lot of, a ton of young players on that team. And I think that Carter Kaboom, who is the guy, or Kiboom, who is a guy that was started off as a catcher, he's one of the top prospects there in the Washington National System. But he's a guy that, who knows, could probably fill in at third if Rendon does sign elsewhere. So that's something we got to look at here moving forward. And then the Mets made a trade, well, twofold. Mets made a trade for a center fielder. No, it wasn't. Starling Marte or somebody of an all-star caliber ilk. They traded for Jake Marisnik for two minor leaguers. And Marisnik, let's face it, very good glove. Formerly with the Marlins, he came up with them back in the early teens. But is a guy that has a good glove and has more power than Juan Lagares, but he is more of a slightly better version of Juan Lagares. So that's what the Mets are going to do there. As we all know, they're going to go shopping at Kmart when it comes to securing talent and hope that they could uh, catch lightning in a bottle. And then when one guy comes in, of course, one guy leaves, and that's a one Zach Wheeler as he goes down the turnpike, five years for $118 million with the Phillies. And we know that the Mets rotation is solid one through four. And solid may be a little bit of an understatement, but you have your two-time defending Cy Young Jacob DeGrom, followed by Noah Syndergaard. Then you have Steven Matz, as well as Marcus Stroman. If you want to flip-flop them as three and four, that's fine. And then now where your fifth starter is going to come from, I hear this talks about maybe Rick Porcello coming in, which, eh, okay. But then even other than the qualifying offer, and you knew that Zach Wheeler was going to turn it down, that was it. They figured, oh, we'll wash our hands, we'll get a draft pick, and away we go. So instead of just reaching out to say, hey, how about five for 100? That wasn't going to be the case, so... I could see him becoming the Daniel Murphy as far as pitching is concerned where he's just going to kill the Mets, maybe throw a no-hitter in the process, and Zach Wheeler, we're going to rue the day that we were unable to sign him. And speaking of signings, not necessarily this is a signing, but the Mets possibly may have a new owner where this owner, who is a hedge fund guy from Wall Street, who also was part of a wire fraud where he, I believe, paid an exorbitant amount of money, did not go to jail, thank goodness. So a lot of people are looking at this as John Spano part two. If you don't know who John Spano is, just look him up. He was going to save the Islanders back in the mid to late 90s, and he was the biggest crook going. But as far as Steve Cohen is the guy I'm talking about here, where he's been a lifelong Met fan, has been investing in this team, but now... Is to be said that this guy who's worth, I believe, what is it, $9.2 billion, where he's going to take over the reins of this franchise in five years as Fred and Jeff Wilpon will still assume control over the course of the next five years. And all I got to say is this it's not official. I hope it's official at some point in the next year or so. 
But the sad part is, is that if there's five more years of the Wilpons, and you would think they shouldn't even worry about it, but I could see this Met team is going to continue to shop at the bottom of the basement uh, basement bins, bargain bins, whatever you want to call it, for players and not go ahead and try to take a stab at some of the top free agents that are out there, considering that they play in New York, considering they have an attractive ballpark, they have a fan base that's been rabid for so many years and will always play second fiddle to the Yankees here in this town. But why would that even be the case in the matter, knowing that they're going to be gone in five years, but no, let's penny pinch between now and then, despite the fact that we have control, but we're not going to assume all these responsibilities five years from now. Why don't they just take the, whatever the franchise costs, I'm sure it's probably somewhere close to $3 billion, and I'm sure that includes the network as well. Take your money, go off in the sunset, and that's it. Let Steve Cohen take over. As I said, Met fan, a guy who who knows? Does he want to look at the Mets as a shiny new toy so he could brag to his other billionaires, which I hope that's not the case, and then destroy the team from the top up or from the top down? And then, or if he's a guy that he's going to go ahead and put the right baseball people, the right baseball minds, and bring this organization back another championship for the first time in now 34 years. That, to me, remains to be seen. But I'm just hoping Fingers crossed, praying that this transaction goes through and that even though it's been said five years, but it could be less than that, maybe in two years' time. Because this offseason, with how it's gone, and Zach Wheeler, would I have signed him for five years, $118 million? No. But the thing is, is that after the qualifying offer, it's like, all right, well, that's it. We're done. And the same thing for going to find a center fielder or bullpen help, or whatever. And I don't care about the rumors of them trading you know, Jeru's Familia. Or, no, because that's going to be a bad contract for a bad contract. And maybe a change of scenery for whomever would be the person that's coming back. Obviously, we would have to see who that is. But again, this is the Mets. They want to be cute. They want to be creative. They want to try to not go out as much as they may say they have financial flexibility. But we all know at the end of the day that it's not the case. So that's what we got there with the Mets. So let's see what part of the hot stove they're going to be involved with as far as not necessarily free agents, but who knows? Trades, things of that nature. Well, obviously we'll keep our eyes and ears peeled for any news and notes coming out of uh, San Diego over the course of the next few days. And uh, two other quick things. I know the Hall of Fame, the Veterans Committee, inducted both the catcher, Ted Simmons, a former Cardinal, Milwaukee Brewer, played many years and was a switch hitter. I understand when you may look at the numbers, it's, ah, all right, it's, you know, it's not 3,000 hits and it's not 500 home runs, but this is a guy in an era, especially when it comes to offensive catchers. Now people could say, okay, well, Gary Carter during that time was great in the Hall of Famer and Johnny Bench certainly didn't approach those numbers, but he was a switch hitter, a very good hitter, maybe not the best Backstop as far as the catch is concerned, but Ted Simmons, he's worthy of being a Hall of Famer. And he was a guy that in game one of the, I believe it was game one of the 1982 World Series, had five hits in a game, so I don't have a problem with that. And then Marvin Miller, who was long overdue to be part of the enshrinement in Cooperstown. Marvin Miller was just, he was the only the guy who revolutionized baseball when it comes to free agency, uh, empowering players to negotiate their multi-million dollar deals, things of that nature, choose whichever team they want to go to. Yeah, he was only responsible for that. But of course, there was such a 
rift between him and the owners. So you figured that he was never making it to the hole. Now he passed seven years ago at the age of 95. So it's uh, posthumously. But certainly worthy of being in the hole. So those are your two from the Veterans Committee. And then next month we'll find out what players headlined by Derek Jeter will be part of the induction for 2020. And then to close out here with the uh, NBA, NHL, and my hero zero, I'll just kind of lump this all together. NBA is pretty much status quo. I know the Lakers and the Bucks are certainly heads above everybody else. Lakers have won 14 of 15, and the Bucks have won 15 in a, or 14 in a row. So they're certainly the top dogs in each of their respective conferences. Everybody else is just paying rent right now when you look at it. And again, we're only 24, 25 games into the season, but they're certainly leading the pack and trying to separate themselves from the pack as far as in the East and West is concerned. The other big news of note over the course of the last week was the Knicks firing David Fisdale, which was no surprise. When you lose to 44 in Milwaukee and then 37 at home to Denver, especially after three weeks back, with the press conference of Scott Perry and Steve Mills, totally unacceptable, the performance of the team, and not only that, they even held themselves accountable. But they had to make a change. Now, Mike Miller's your interim coach, so who knows how far he's going to take him. But again, this roster, I'm sorry. You could bring Red Auerbach from the dead. You could bring whatever coach in. They are not going to do any better than what David Fisdale did. And I understand Fisdale's a guy who's well-respected around the league. A lot of players love him. Memphis, obviously, that didn't work out, especially with Marcus Gasol early on. And then here, not necessarily with any players, but in particular, just not having the right pieces or not having the personnel to excel and try to take the Knicks to some sort of respectability. That's not to say Fizdale's not to blame. You know, I know his rotations and some of the things that he did here, especially early on in the season, not putting in Frank uh, Nilakina, who is a very good defensive, top-notch defensive guard, and putting a bunch of power forwards on the floor at the same time. Certainly, maybe he was looking to looking for his exit by some of his matchups or whatever it may be. But Fisdale is gone, and let's see what happens with the Knicks here. To think there's actually one team worse than them in the NBA, and that's Golden State. Now, Golden State, I think, has actually has one win more because the Knicks are, what, 4-19? And I believe Golden State's 5-19. and So, I guess by record standpoint, they are still the worst team in the league, but certainly not by much considering Golden State is just a smidge above them. But uh, that's what you have there in the NBA. Nothing really else to report. I mean, I'm not going to go through standings, things of that, you know, that nature. But uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk NBA. And uh, pretty much the same with the NHL. The uh, NHL right now, Washington has certainly gotten off to the point where now they've won, what, six in a row, 49 points. I know that the Islanders below them certainly have a few games in hand and that the Bruins have also played very well here, but the Capitals have certainly come out like gangbusters to start off this year and are playing the best hockey of all. You know, Edmonton's still playing well, St. Louis. Those teams that have been saying now for weeks on end have been uh, certainly continuing to hold the top spot in their respective divisions. And uh, again, these winter sports, there's going to be plenty of time to talk about it. I know I've said this week in and week out for those who have listened to this podcast over the last month or so. But uh, it's all football right now. It's all NFL, and obviously with the hot stove stuff, 
basketball. I know one thing about the NBA. They've talked about the reseeding. Uh, not to say that's going to happen this year. As far as the postseason is concerned, they want to try to make it interesting, maybe one through eight, uh, one through sixteen. Because as we all know, once you get past the first screw, of, you know, string of games here to start off the year, then you kind of settle into the season, and it gets forgotten until about maybe late January when you start getting the games on ABC. But we all know both the NBA and the NHL, they're long seasons, and none of these matchups, except for maybe a chosen few, are you going to get yourself wrapped up in. Remember, a few weeks back, I mentioned Anthony Davis's first game back in L.A. I'm sorry, excuse me, his first game back in New Orleans after the trade. And although I did mention it, but then the following week, I didn't even bring it up on the podcast because it was no big deal. And he scored 41 points in the game in his return to New Orleans. But that just goes to show you how lost the NBA is. I'm not saying them in particular, but the season is because it's forgotten. Now, I'm sure when the Bucks play the Lakers, that's going to be interesting. Lakers-Clippers on Christmas, great. You know, you're going to have certain games that you're going to look ahead to. But again, if you're not paying attention, those games will go right by. You'll be like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't realize that those teams played. So that's what we have there. And uh, let me close out with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is a one Carolyn Wozniacki. Now, people are going to say, Carolyn Wozniacki, who is that? Well, if you're a tennis fan or not, she was your number one ranked player in the world going back to 2010 and 2011. And even though she was number one, but she had some early exits in a lot of these tournaments. She would lose on the first day in some of these tournaments. I know one day, I believe in the Australian, she lost on the first day. And maybe even in the in Wimbledon, she was bounced in the first uh, round. But give her credit, at the age of 29, she's retiring after the 2020 Australian Open. So hopefully she goes out with a bang. Who knows if she's going to end up winning the tournament. I would think as of right now, she probably won't. But... Hopefully she has one nice long run in her. It'll be a very good story. And at the end of January, that's when the Australian Open will begin. She said that she uh, realized that there's a lot more left in life that she'd like to accomplish off the court. Said it had nothing to do with health, even though she has uh, the rheumatoid arthritis, which has affected her over the years. And obviously she's going to be a huge part of that as far as research is concerned and putting in some efforts as far as foundations and things of that nature. So good for her. Carolyn Wozniacki, give it up as she's my hero of the week. And in my zero of the week, and this is a no-brainer, the Niners radio analyst Tim Ryan, that during the game last week against the Baltimore Ravens, making insensitive remarks about Lamar Jackson, about how he holds the ball and that the skin color hides it. I mean, geez. Uh, and, of course, the Ravens were in, I believe, black jerseys that day. But uh, he should have known better than to say that, and that's just a no not even a no-no. That is a no, capital N-O, with 50 exclamation points after that. So he gets my zero of the week. And uh, that will pretty much do it here. To uh, wrap up, as always, as I like to say, people, I am gracious, grateful, thankful that you give me an opportunity to hear what it is I have to say about what happens in the world of sports. This is why I do it. I do it for you guys. I have a love and passion for sports, as everybody knows. Or if you don't know, if this is your first time tuning in and you say, hey, you know, Jay Reels wasn't too bad. Well, if you could go ahead and subscribe on wherever you subscribe to your platform, uh, to your podcast on whatever platform that may be, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio, CastBox, there's a million others that are out there. If you could go ahead, just subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, I would greatly appreciate it because all that's going to do is just increase the visibility 
amongst all the other sports podcasts that are out there. And hopefully that will generate some interest with some guests that I'm trying to line up here. I'm trying to reach out to former athletes, even some current athletes as well, sportscasters, broadcasters, writers, bloggers, etc. Because I want to take this to bigger and better heights for 2020. And with your participation in doing so, uh, that will certainly be forever, I'll be forever thankful for. And if you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts or shoot me an email for any questions, comments, criticism, praise, any two cents that you want to add, I'm open to listening to whatever it is that you have to say. You could do so at J Reels, Instagram, J Reels1, just the number on Twitter, the J Reels podcast on my Facebook fan page, and the J Reels podcast at gmail.com for my email address. If you also want to contribute to the podcast, as far as production is concerned, you could do so at my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash the J Reels podcast. That's P, that's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Patreon, that is, as I continue to bring you people and the masses, everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Rules Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Rules Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>